This week on the Backtable Podcast. We have an opportunity over the next couple of years to really start to look at outcome measures and really be influential in what things are important to our field. And I think if we don't take the lead in doing this as an academy, as a group of physicians, someone will do it for us. And the more active we can be involved, the more we can influence this and make sure it's appropriate. And so I think this is a ripe time, especially for people that are coming out of residency to just take this by the horns and really be committed to making these improvements. And I think what we'll see is we'll start seeing values where we can go and talk to our colleagues and say, here's the things you're being measured on. And they're going to look at that and go, these are really important to patient outcomes. And these are important to me, as opposed to things that may be assigned if we're not involved. And so if we're not going to be involved, someone will be involved for us. And the more that we can influence it, the better we can make these measures. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we like to discuss all things ENT with the hope that we can bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist. I'm here today with Dr. Walter Coots as my co-host. How are you doing today, Walter? I'm doing great, Gopi. We're fortunate to have Dr. Mark Bennett join us today. Dr. Bennett completed his medical school and otolaryngology training at Johns Hopkins and went on to complete a fellowship in neurotology at the Vanderbilt Ear Group. He stayed on as faculty at Vanderbilt and is now a professor of otolaryngology and also is director of quality at Vanderbilt. Dr. Bennett went on to complete his master's of management in healthcare. He has developed an interest in quality and currently is executive medical director of safety at Vanderbilt. During our conversation today, we're hoping to understand how quality has evolved in the healthcare system and how we can improve quality among our institutions, trainees, and most importantly, ourselves. So Dr. Bennett, welcome to Backtable ENT. Great to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Can you tell us a little more about your, your practice and also about your background on how you became interested in quality and safety? Yeah. So currently my practice is sort of 50% clinical. So treating patients both in clinic and in the operating room, and then 50%, I'll say, on the quality and safety side, where, as you said, I am the executive medical director for safety. So we're looking at safety events. So we have a system at Vanderbilt where anonymously people can put any sort of patient concerns in, and we review about 50,000 of these patient concerns a year, and then sort of get elevated up anywhere between about 10 to 15 to sort of a group setting a week, and then usually have one or two event analyses over these each week. In addition to that, I, I do a lot of the outcome metrics for Vanderbilt. So we look at a lot at mortality and patient safety indicators. And so I just want to make sure as we look at external rankings that we're doing as well to represent the care that we give to patients. So Mark, how did you initially get involved with quality? I think I sort of got lucky. My father was uh, in safety and quality, worked for a pharmaceutical company. And so I sort of had a little interest from hearing him as a kid talk about how much he loved it. And initially, you know, got into medicine because I just loved treating patients. And then I realized it was really gratifying to treat patients because you could see individual improvements. But if we look at system-based practices, you can change things for an entire practice. You can change things for an entire hospital. So that was really eye-opening to me and had a really forward-thinking chairman in Dr. Ron Evie, and he really encouraged us to find our niches, make ourselves different than just 
someone who's just practicing clinical medicine. So he really encouraged me to go out to Intermountain Healthcare, learn from Brett James about some quality metrics and how to look at improving the system. And then just took a chance and we started to improve some of the metrics at Vanderbilt. And it just was so rewarding to me personally, professionally, I've continued to build on that. That's great. Yeah, then Mark, I, I can see how, you know, sometimes we treat individual patients, we make big change in our life. And I know you and I have talked about this before that some, you know, administrative leadership position like that, you can really affect a lot of people. I think, you know, I get somewhat confused being the the surgeon at the hospital, you know, I'm doing my thing, I'm seeing patients in the clinic, I'm operating and, you know, sometimes the hospital, you'll get these quality reports, you hear these, these emails about quality. Kind of tell us, what does the hospital think about quality? I mean, how does you know, how as a faculty should we, you know, help the hospital or what are they sort of looking at? Well, I think we have to think about our outcome measures and our quality measures in sort of two different realms. One of them is just strictly patient outcome measures. And that's whether you want to talk about PROMs, which are patient reported outcome measures, like I hear better, my ear feels better, you know, things that come into our world, whether those are objective measures, like how often you close a hole in an eardrum or even just hearing outcomes, right, objectively with an audiogram. But even more importantly, as you look at institutional things, things that go on, most of that quality reporting is done through administrative data. So it's really done through hospital billing data. And it's a little bit eye-opening when you get into this world to realize that little changes in words can mean the difference between how well the hospital is reimbursed, how well does this hospital look when comparing itself to its peers, and I think we don't really get taught about sort of the administrative data and its importance when you look at it. We're really taught to focus on the patient, focus on clinical care. But a large part of what we're doing and being measured, especially as you look at things like U.S. News or LeapFrog, you're being compared to every other institution out there. And so that administrative data, whether we like it or not, is a reflection on the care that you're giving. And so for somebody that, you know, maybe newly out or perhaps even in their first 10 to 15 years out where, you know, I feel like quality is something that has come more into our curriculums. How do you learn more about quality and some of these metrics? I mean, every once in a while, our department will have somebody from the billing, you know, and say, hey, we need to make sure you're listing whatever diagnosis, not just this, because it makes a difference. Or if it's more than a 23-hour observation, but it turns to this, we need to have more diagnoses. Is that kind of what you're talking about with some of the administrative data and wording and things like that? Yeah, I mean, think in terms of interest, it should happen on multiple levels. I think as we move forward five and 10 years, we're going to see this really populate into the med schools, into the teaching, right? So we learn about Starling's curve and everything else, but no one teaches you this part of medicine, right? No one, you know, a third of your day was going to be spent with a mouse clicking buttons. They're going to determine reimbursement, determine your outcome measures. But even more importantly, I think for people to really excel in quality, there has to be an interest there. You can't force it upon people. But if someone has the interest, it's really important to find a mentor. It doesn't need to be an otolaryngology. Every hospital is going to have, whether it's a chief operating officer, someone in the quality and safety department that can really mentorship. And I think the first thing to do is to start with a simple project. At Vanderbilt, we're kind of fortunate because the med students, about half of them are required to do a quality initiative project, and they'll come through the department because we've been really good at getting these trials published and, and these different interventions published. And so they come in with these bright ideas and, and really full of energy. And they say, first thought is usually, oh, I want to boil the entire ocean. I'm going to fix all of your outpatient metrics. And 
you kind of have to walk someone off the cliff and say, okay, let's focus on one area that you think is really important. And whatever that area is, as long as the passion is there and you have a good mentor, that's usually the spark that someone needs. And then, you know, just like we all did research during residency, part of that is to learn if it's something that you like. So if someone doesn't really like being in the quality world and being in the administrative data, then there's other projects that could be more an outcomes-based and other things. But for those who have an interest, there's a lot of courses around the country. Intermountain does it. Harvard does it. And there's really good programs to leapfrog and Vizient really to help take that small interest and really light a fire with it. That's interesting. I always, when I talk to medical students, residents, you know, I think it's important for them to find a way they can like you say, sort of develop a niche, differentiate themselves, become a leader. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go into academic medicine, right? You could go, you know, your hospital system may be quality something good to be involved with. You can be involved with the academy, things of this sort. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm you know, I have some interest in quality. I've, I've been on our peer review, actually a chair of peer review. And, you know, even with that background, I still really don't know where to go to look for the, you know, to sort of get interest in this. So there's some, you know, any like websites or free resources that people can look at just to sort of see if they are interested? I think the two biggest resources that are sort of nationwide would be through LeapFrog and then through Vizient, which Vizient has about 120 of the academic centers. So it doesn't have every academic center, but it really has a significant number of academic centers. And there's courses being done all the time, as well as IHI as well. So those would be kind of the three big players. But there's a lot of free information. Then even through our academy, um, it's starting slowly, but I think that there's good momentum and, and we'll continue to be able to provide more products for both our trainees as well as our attendings. And when I think of like quality improvement, I, I hate to sound so sort of basic about it, but I think of the four letters, right? The PDSA, the Plan, Do, Study, Act. Is that kind of the most basic principles or what are some of the most basic pillars or principles that when you first have, you know, talk to somebody about quality or how to think about it, how do you kind of explain it, I guess? Yeah, so uh, we certainly, from a quality improvement idea, the idea is to try to find objective data. And then to try to look at that data, have an intervention, and then see if that intervention leads to different outcomes or improved outcomes. And so just like you're talking about the PDSA cycles, that's one way of looking at it. We do a lot of what we call run charts. And so especially as we're following things like mortality or complications, if you follow and you're just looking at one patient, right, all you have is an answer of complication, yes or no. When you really look across populations and you look at times, you start to find rates. And so as you plot those out over time, you can see differences between different providers. You can also, as you plot one provider out over time, you can see where there are changes that could be statistically significant. So we all know about statistical significance from our papers, but when we look at it in terms of things like run charts, those are areas where we want to look at that outcome. So if I was plotting the number of postoperative spinal fluid leaks that we have at Vanderbilt. And every month we averaged one. And then all of a sudden, one month we had five. We'd have to go back and say, what was intrinsically different about that month? How do we isolate that month and then study it? And that's the beauty of looking at objective measures is that you can really break it down, go back in time, find what are sort of the causative factors, and then make changes to improve patient care. You know, one of the challenges, you know, I see is it's, I think it's sometimes it's hard to capture the data and maybe I'm not getting the 
the university involved enough. But, you know, for instance, like if you're looking at CSF leaks, it's I think it's somewhat hard, you know, with our EMR system, we use ICD-10 codes. This is all, all really meant for billing, and it's probably getting better to look at quality, but it seems sometimes difficult to capture that data. And really, it's going to be hard for you to ad hoc on your own time. So it'd really be better. Are there ways that you can set up Epic or whatever sort of EMR or your hospital to maybe red cap the Vanderbilt product to help capture that data? What do, how do you guys do that? Yeah. So I, we're a little bit fortunate at the Autology Group in that in the early 90s, actually when Dr. Miner was a fellow, Mike Glasscock, Gary Jackson, and Forrest Talent, who is our audiologist, kind of came together with a questionnaire that they did for all the surgeries, both skull base and chronic ears. And so we've been capturing that data for the past you know, 30 something years, as well as their audiologic data. So we have this huge database of somewhere on the order of about 55, 60,000 chronic ears and six or 8,000 skull base. And so you can go in and pick out different areas you want to look at. But even within Epic, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities to uh, look at the data. Our billing people help us a lot, like you say, with CPT codes, if we want to find a particular procedure or a complication. The other way that we look at it is, you know, every month we're submitting data to Vizient, which again, looks at a lot of the academic centers. And so we get data back from Vizient. And so that data, we can look through for things like complications, complication rates, outcome measures, readmissions. So there's a whole ton of data out there. And I think even as you start to look at the data that's available, it's a little crazy what we're judged on. And I think, you know, when you asked earlier about what do we not know or what can we identify, what we don't know is really, I mean, everything that we're doing is being looked at in some way. So insurance companies are looking at how much it costs for you to work up unilateral sensory neural loss versus Brandon versus Jake, right? So they're all, and they know if they go to Walter, it costs them $52 extra, right? So that, you know, that, that, I mean, that's Great. the amount of data they have on you. Yeah. But even more, as you look at these sort of national metrics like U.S. News and World Report, they're using just CMS data. So, you know, if you look at the otolaryngology across the board, where there's some on the order of about 20% of Medicare patients, those are the population they're using to drive all of these outcome measures and all of these rankings. And so you're using small snippets of the overall data to try to project rankings. And essentially, I don't know that it's necessarily the most fair way of doing it, but there's also no better way to do it as we know right now. That's a very interesting concept of there's all this data, they're using the data. And the question is, is it the right data? Based on your position and you know your interest in quality, what do we need to do as clinicians to make sure that the right data, I guess, is being looked at? Well, I think even as we look forward, I think one of the things is, is I think our academy could take a lead on some of these outcome measures. So if we go back and talk a little bit like at U.S. News uh, and you look at the risk factors and you look at how do you stratify two patients that have laryngeal cancer? The risk factors that identify who's at a higher expected mortality are things like kidney disease and peripheral vascular disease. No one's really taking into account the fact that one tumor is involving the carotid artery and one tumor is one millimeter in size. And so I think having the right knowledge base to be able to say, these are the things that are really important in this area, and this is where we can make a difference. I think that's the next level because our academy has started to do this with certain sort of prom measurements and, and various things like 
how often does someone give antibiotics with a tympanostomy tube? And they're, they're sort of on the, the entry level. But I think to get to that next level, we really have to take that jump in. And part of that should be the academy. Part of it should be some of our young physicians leading this and helping determine things for insurance companies that are important to us. Yeah, I agree. A lot of the things that are captured when you look at Vizian and LeapFrog, it's kind of like, why is that that relevant? But like you say, it's what they can capture. It's it's data. And, and if it's not clean data they capture now, then it's just not worth it. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be interesting. You know, one thing I think now, I think with the Academy, they do have some quality programs. I think it's, isn't it self-reported by the practices and departments, some of the data? It's still elective, but yes, you can report through the data through sort of the areas that like Lisa Ernest has helped set up through the Academy. Mm-hmm. And are there any issues with uh, integrity with that data? You know, you always, you know, you can see somebody sort of maybe stretching something or, you know, and I don't, how do they get around that with quality? I mean, I think the integrity is only as good as the entry level of what's going in. And I think as you look at these sort of outcome measures, whether you're even talking about, again, Vizient or LeapFrog, all of the data has the chance to have some manipulation. I think in terms of integrity, I think we're in a field where we really don't see as much manipulation of the data as some of some other fields. And so I think these are good steps forward. And I think they'll, as we continue to build on it, it will become more powerful. So from the otolaryngology department at Vanderbilt, is there a specific quality curriculum that you guys have for your trainees or for your faculty? Yeah, so we do a bunch of different areas. So one area is that we have individual lectures. So we lecture to the residents. We have faculty uh, meetings at Grand Rounds on quality outcomes as part of our MM. And that is usually once or twice a year sort of on that area. As part of each MM&I, we give outcome measures. So we talk about our risk factor capture or how well our, we're working on our expected mortality at things like Visit. We talk about our observed and expected mortalities. We talk about patient safety indicators. So we try to get all of the things that are being looked at nationally and pull them into our MM&I conferences because we have a lot of faculty there that are almost all the faculty are there for it. So it's good education for them. And then as an institution, we really look at the entire picture. So we don't want to just look at one area or another. So there's groups that pull in everything from how well do we interact with our coders and and with our CDI teams as well. And we kind of give documentation scores. So a lot of work is really being done at Vanderbilt. And I think a lot of this is on the documentation and coding side, because I think, again, it's a learned trait and it's not one that we all learn well. And so that the more we can help our residents, our faculty, to be able to document better, the more realistic all of that administrative data that's being used to judge us becomes. And in terms of, I think the point of the relationship with the coders is very important. You know, when I get an email that I didn't enter something, I'm always grateful because after a while, those things add up. In terms of documentation, how helpful are templates or how hurtful are templates? Like, what is your take on the template? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's good and bad sides to it. I'll start with the good side to it, which is that they can really help you bring out parts of your documentation that you may not be thinking about. So one is before they just rearranged all of the E&M coding, 
just to make sure you had each area, right, of documentation that you needed for specific levels involved in a note. That's super helpful. We have Epic, so we use things like dot phrases to help us, especially with our expected mortality. You know, so if you come in with laryngeal cancer, no one on the dot phrase needs to put in the neck disease. No one needs to put in about metastatic disease. But we have things in there about kidney failure and pulmonary disease, heart failure, BMI, nutrition status, because those are the things that I'm not inherently thinking about. Our residents aren't inherently thinking about. And so the ability to capture those things, which is what Physiant and U.S. News are using to adjust your expected mortality, are super helpful to our residents. So that's really on the good side. I think also from uh, operative notes and other things. Again, it can help you kind of structure your notes for those people that don't have the same structure skills or able to get everything incorporated. On the downside, it creates a lot of garbage. And we see this when you look through notes, right? That if you look through a daily note on a patient and then you look the next day note, they may not look very different. And part of that's because of the templating, right? And so you may have two lines on there that talk about the differences. I still remember as a fellow writing in a paper chart and, you know, on a post-op acoustic, it would be post-op day one, no CSF leak, house Brackman one, anticipate discharge tomorrow, right? It's everything you needed in four lines. But now our post-op acoustics, it's a five-page note that has every lab value and every radiology area in there. And it's sometimes overwhelming. In terms of just one last question about templates and documentation, how do you know what to include in terms of some of the things that we know that we need in our HPI or exam? We know, right? Post-up day four or whatever. But what about all the other stuff that they look at in terms of the data that they look at? Do you work with your coders to be like, what do I need to include? Or how do you better your template, if you will? Yeah, we work with both our coders and then the quality and safety team. So every year we're looking through the Vizient data. We look through what's called Elix Hauser data, which is also another expected mortality realm data. So we look at all these things and then we will actually go to each individual department as part of quality and safety and say, hey, vascular surgery, here's the areas that you're really missing in your risk factors, in your expected mortality. Here's the things that you're not documenting well. And that's from our safety and quality side. Now, our coders will often go to them and meet with them monthly and say, here's the top queries that we're giving to your department, right? So we're querying you because you're not documenting about you know, nutrition status. So they're doing more of a feedback of, here's the things we see that we're asking you to fill out later on. Why don't you work on these now? And that way it can be incorporated in the note. And we're looking more into kind of the future of saying, hey, here's the things that we think are going to be really important to you. How do you help capture those? Is it different in adult ENT or medicine versus in pediatric on the ped, ped side? At Vanderbilt, it's completely different because the adult side, we do things, right? We use U.S. News. We have Vizient. We have LeapFrog. On the PED side, our PEDs are mostly interested in outcome measures really with FIS, which is the Pediatric Hospital Collaborative. And so completely different set of rules, completely different set of risk factors and all those, those areas. And that's not to say we don't work together as teams uh, and work on the same sort of tasks like dot phrases, like query results. 
but it's a completely different set of rules and structure. Yeah, I agree with Gopi. You know, it's hard. You know, we're trying to see 35 patients in a clinic and then, you know, do cases all day. And then, you know, I get those 3M alerts that something needs to be documented a certain way. And I'm like, I, that's common sense. I don't understand all this. And, and, you know, and I think it's great that you have the monthly, you incorporate your M&M conference, the quality, and that keeps, keeps it in the front of everybody's mind. Because if not, you're just too busy for this. So I think the templates is, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I know UT Southwest have built some of that in and are working on that, but it's certainly a challenge. Yeah. And I think it's not as something that we're inherently taught to think about, right? We're taught to think about the patient. We're taught to think about the outcomes, but we're not taught to think about how well do we document, right? Like as your job as an intern and as a resident was to get to the next patient, right? Get done with your job, get to the next patient, do whatever documentation you had. But now it's changing, right? It's so important just to be so accurate with what you're documenting. And I think that's going to be the take home because the better someone documents, the more honest all the administrative data is. And we all know administrative data has got flaws, but certainly if we're not doing a good job of documenting, it's going to be even more flawed. So like a little take home for the audience, what's the one thing I could do tomorrow to do better with quality and help the hospital and the university out? I mean, the most simple thing is to try to document everything that you can on a patient in the hospital. And I think one of the easiest ways that we try to convey this to patients is to, if there's only one trick to doing it and you don't have dot phrase, you don't have the infrastructure to come up with all these hints, it's just to take a simple medication list and have a reason for every medicine someone's taking. So if you're on three medicines and one of them's a statin, you probably have high cholesterol, right? And so if one of them's an antihypertensive, what is each of those medicines for? Because just that documentation is going to be super important in those comorbidities and those risk factors. I think the other thing that's super important is just it is to find a passion if you have one in quality and not to look for things to improve your patient outcome like measures, but to say you've got a fire to improve patient efficiency, right? That's going to drive thousands of projects as opposed to just saying, I want to work on this one outcome measure because two years from now, that outcome measure may change. But if you have the passion, it will drive all the right things. And even if it doesn't drive the outcome measures, it will still make patients more satisfied and make you more satisfied as a clinician. That's great. Thanks. On a personal level, was there a quality project that had a tremendous impact for you personally or from patient outcome or care for you just as a clinician? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of them uh, really hit home. One of them had a big role in, which is really looking at our post-operative CSF leaks and acoustic neuromas. And this is one of the ones that we talk about with the PDSA cycle, because we looked at our previous outcomes, thought it was a little bit higher kind of met as a group, talked about different techniques, instituted sort of a cranioplasty technique of, of a way of sort of, especially in trans labs, of sort of keeping the fat a little bit more pressurized and then restudied it and kind of lowered our spinal fluid leak rate by about 80%, which is a, a huge difference. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're doing you know, 100 acoustics a year, that's somewhere in the order of going from about 18 to two or three spinal fluid leaks. That's 15 patients, 15 remissions, a lot of ICU days, 
other things. So that, from a patient outcome uh, standpoint, was super important. From an institutional standpoint, I think one of the things that's really given me a lot of joy is is working with the residents on these quality projects, and they they have about three months of dedicated time to come in, and so. We've done a significant number of projects with preoperative and postoperative phone calls in terms of trying to reduce complications, reduce post-op phone calls. And so again, sitting with the medical students, sitting with the residents and saying, okay, let's talk about different areas of quality and different ways that we look at quality. So let's try a tally chart. Let's look at every post-operative phone call and why they called, right? And so we did this for our otology group and we realized hey, we're not talking to them about when to use drops sufficiently well because we're getting about a third of our patients calling asking, when should I use the drops? And so we incorporated that into kind of the pre-op teaching, right? And what we saw was like a 20% reduction in post-op phone calls just based on the fact that everyone knew when to start drops. And those sort of simple things are simple projects, but they can really go a long way because if you've got three or four people answering phone calls all day and you can reduce their burden by 15 or 20%. That's Maybe that's more new patients coming into the clinic. Maybe it's just more satisfaction for that nursing staff, but those are all significant improvements. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's I've thought about that. I sometimes look at the number of phone calls from surgery to the first post-op visit, and it, it is tremendous. And so, you know, I guess as a, especially as a medical student, there's a lot of pressure to do research, do it be published research, all these things. And, you know, I, I think these sort of projects are very interesting to medical students. You know, you don't have to have some background in some very obscure otology problem. Are a lot of these projects, you were mentioning they are, they are publishable. What sort of journals, what sort of, where do you publish these sort of projects? Yeah. So, I mean, you always shoot high and then you're willing to settle for lower. Right. So, so we've been there, the, the journal walk of shame there. <laughs> I mean, we we submitted one of them to JAMA and that didn't take very long to come back to us with a, maybe here's some suggestions of other places you may want to submit it to. But we look at a lot of the quality journals and there's almost a thousand different quality journals, but really I like for especially when they have an otolaryngology presence to have them in our journals, because I think you look at our journals, you really see three different things. You see some strange diseases that no one's really heard about that someone is studying or doing some really fascinating basic research on. You see sort of the mainstream patient outcomes and, and then quality stuff just doesn't get a whole lot of time in the ENT journals. And I think the more we can get in there, it'd be nice to have even a section on there. This is a patient reported outcome section and have an article in there, whether that's otology and neurotology or JAMA otolaryngology or the white journal. I think there's an avenue for it. And until we start publishing in those journals, and so I do sort of have a natural inclination for residents and for our med students to try to publish in our otolaryngology journals, even though they may not have the same impact factor as a JAMA surgery or perioperative practice journal. I don't think that the, the traction is as much as things that we can get done in otolaryngology. And, and we're publishing in JAMA or laryngoscope or whatever. And all we have to do is excite one or two people with each article. That That's the sort of growth, right? It's like a fellowship. It's not that you trained 15 people since you've been at a fellowship. It's that those 15 people have also trained 15 people and each of them. And so that's how the family grows. And so if we can spark one or two people with an article, 
just to even explore that interest, we'll see these quality measures change in otolaryngology. We'll see more people becoming involved. Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. I, lo- I love that it always kind of comes back to find, making sure you find that passion for it, find the passion to make it better um, and ask the questions. So as we wrap up, Mark, are there any final pearls that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I think the biggest pearl is that we have an opportunity over the next couple of years to really start to look at outcome measures and really be influential in what things are important to our field. And I think if we don't take the lead in doing this as an academy, as a group of physicians, someone will do it for us. And the more active we can be involved, the more we can influence this and make sure it's appropriate. And so I think this is a ripe time, especially for people that are coming out of residency to just take this by the horns and really be committed to making these improvements. And I think what we'll see is we'll start seeing values where we can go and talk to our colleagues and say, here's the things you're being measured on. And they're going to look at that and go, these are really important to patient outcomes. And these are important to me, as opposed to things that may be assigned if we're not involved. And so I think the pearl is, if we're not going to be involved, someone will be involved for us. And the more that we can influence it, the better we can make these measures. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well said. Thank you, Mark. This has been a great conversation. Um, like you say, hopefully we have a, a few of the audience members get that spark like you were talking about and continue um, you know, their journey with quality and, and, and continue to improve quality and safety for our patients. And I love it's us to define what's important in our field. That's, this is the opportunity to do that. I think that's probably what I've learned as well. Mark, if our audience wants to reach you, how can they find you? I think the best way is just by email. It's marc.bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, at V-U-M-C dot org. Thank you for your time, Mark. It was really nice to talk with you. Thank you both for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess, social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.